using philosophy to understand our city and to change it. This is Phi on New York, the podcast of the Gotham Philosophical Society, with your host, Joe Beal. Can a city have a soul? And if so, is it something solid and fixed for as long as the city survives, putting its stamp on each new generation? Or is the soul of a city a much more ephemeral thing, a transient spirit of the moment, a metaphorical summation of the prevailing sentiments of its citizens? These are the kinds of questions that give this podcast its reason for being, and they are the questions that have preoccupied the career of my guest today. In early summer of this year, Joseph Vitteriti, the Thomas Hunter Professor of Public Policy and Chair of the Urban Policy and Planning Department at Hunter College of the City University of New York, published two essays in the Gotham Gazette with the title, Searching for the Soul of New York. The first focused on the impressions of writers who took the city as their subject, such as E.B. White, James Baldwin, and Gene Kwok. The second offered a brief survey of the political philosophies of the city's mayors, from Jimmy Walker and Fiorella LaGuardia to Michael Bloomberg and Bill de Blasio. Upon reading them, I knew immediately that I wanted to speak with him on the show, and I am grateful to him that he accepted my invitation. I hope you find my conversation with him as rewarding as I did. Joseph Vitteriti, welcome to Fire New York. Thank you for the invitation. It's a, it's a pleasure to have you. Um, could you uh, briefly introduce yourself to the audience? Tell them who you are? Sure. I am a professor of public policy at Hunter College, uh, where I chair the Department of Urban Policy and Planning. I'm a political scientist by training. And one of the topics I've spent a lot of time studying and writing about and teaching is New York City government. I teach a course called Governing the City, which I believe is very interdisciplinary. Uh, and I love doing it at CUNY because CUNY students so much represent what New York is all about. Uh, and that's pretty much what I'm about. <laughs> well, that's great. And, and this course that you teach, I, I want uh, to hear more about it. And I came... Uh, to know of it and to know of you um, through um, a couple of op-eds, um, if that's really what they are, um, that you wrote for Gotham Gazette over the summer um, called Searching for the Soul of New York. And uh, immediately when I saw those titles, I was, I was deeply intrigued. And um, to, uh, to get us into this conversation, I'm going to start... Um, by reading a paragraph from uh, the first of these two pieces uh, where you say, so where might we begin this conversation? Is New York a place or an idea, a destination or an illusion? Does it have a special meaning or purpose? Or is it different things to different people? How does this complex metropolis add up? Does this creature called Gotham have a soul if so, is it a kind and generous soul that cares for those who are struggling, or has it a mean and competitive disposition, accepting the harsh notion that only the fittest will survive? So you had me hooked. Um, and uh, with that, so what is, what's your answer to this? To My answer this? to it is all of the above. But the most important question to me is, does a city have a soul in what, what is it like? What does it represent? Um, you know, I grew up in Brooklyn. I've lived uh, in Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan. I still have an apartment in Manhattan. I went to school in the Bronx. I worked in Staten Island for several years. I've worked for many different mayors. Um, and what I tried, uh, I've gotten to the point teaching over the years and writing and thinking about New York it almost becomes a person to me. It almost, and I'm trying, I'm constantly trying to figure out who that person is. 
uh, and go deeper and say, well, you know, that as all people, it goes through very different stages. It goes through changes. It responds to the environment around it. It responds to pressures. And those changes sometimes are changes for the better and sometimes are changes for the worst. And so I'm constantly trying to figure out who this New York is. And that's what I like to bring to my students. And they bring it to me also because my class is a conversation that goes on for whatever it is, a semester. And the most important part of it is the conversation we have with each other. And I, I never end a semester without learning something from them. Um, and that's why I love doing it. Um, you know, it, this, I've seen the city go through very difficult times. I think one certainly turning point was the fiscal crisis of New York in 1975. But, you know, the last year hasn't been a, exactly a picnic either. And you see New York go through these kinds of struggles and you say, how does it come out? And does it change and does it change for better or worse? So that's constant. That's the constant issue I go to. I like to focus on mayors because at very different periods of time, mayors represent both the aspirations and the anxieties of people at particular points in time. More than any one individual, the mayor represents that. We can look back at it and say, did we really mean that? Is that who we wanted to be? But at some point, it is who the city wanted to be, or at least those people in the city who participate at a high level. It's somewhat skewed because not everybody does participate at a high level. So are those who are left out and are underrepresented. But you do get a sense of where the city is moving by who gets elected to that position. So I've been fascinated with mayors and uh, I've been writing about them, you know, look at what even actually going back to Jimmy Walker to the current where we are now and we're about to make another change. So that's, that's the sum of how I approach things. <laughs> well, I want to speak with you more about the, the mayors and how they have reflected um, who we are as a city um, and where we might be going. I'd like to um, stay with this idea, though, of uh, the soul of a city, this, uh, this question about um, the way you put it, I think, was who this city is. Um, and it, it raised in my mind the question, you know, as I was listening to you, well, is there, is there a city or are we talking about cities? Um, and you can ask that question, I think, uh, possibly both in terms of over time or you, do you have different cities over time at, at different moments in time? But even at one moment, do, are there actually different cities coexisting? Um, you know, it, it is not unrelated to the philosophical question of personal identity. You know, what makes a person one person uh, over time? And, and one of the most uh, influential answers to that question has been the idea of the importance of memory. So of... of if I can remember the things I, I did 40 years ago, then mm -hmm. Absolutely. This, this continuity of memory uh, indicates this continuity of, of, of person, you know, the, the, of person, it's the same person. And I suppose something similar could be said about um, a city, kind of uh, the memories of a city. I mean, and of course, the, the fact the city isn't, going anywhere, though it is, it can grow and shrink, um, but that it is relatively in the same physical, physical uh, space, but it has this memory. Um, so what are your, you know, what do you, is it a matter of it's all of the above in the sense that there is one city or are there multiple cities? And in your there are multiple cities. I, I like the way you frame it. Um, I, I enjoy talking to a philosopher about this. Um, I, I didn't tell you, I mean, when I, 
did my graduate work, my focus in my courses and in what I took my exams as was political theory. So I'm, I'm very sympathetic uh, and appreciative of how you're approaching this. Um, and those of us that do public policy don't think in those terms enough. Um, the city, you, you referred to memory. Memory, we academics call that history. So that's one way of understanding this creature called New York is to look at the history and how it's changed over time. And that's why there's a large component of this course has to do with history. Another thing you do is you're trying to figure this out. What you would ordinarily do is ask other people, well, what do you think of this city? How, well, how does it add up to you? And fortunately, when you're talking about New York, some very interesting people have come to terms with those questions because New York is, is, is a place uh, that has contributed great literature and people have come here to observe it and give their sense of what it's all about. So that's why when we start this course, we start off with literature. I mean, it's great what Joe Vitteridi thinks about New York, but uh, let's, ask, let's ask somebody like Joan Didion or John Steinbeck or E.B. White or Langston Hughes or John, uh, James Baldwin or Gino Diaz or Gene Kwok. Uh, let's see what they think about New York. Um, let's go even further. Let's go and see what Italao Calvino, who writes about cities in almost an existential way, thinks about the whole idea of a city and what they represent. Let's talk to Jane Jacobs, who's been a kind of a, a guidepost for planners, and my program has lots of planners in it. So um, the conversation has to be broad, and the more people you ask, the more answers you get, and you realize the answers are different because people are experiencing a very different city. The city that uh, E.B. White and Joan Didion and John Steinbeck write about is a very different city from Langston Hughes the one that Langston Hughes lived in in Harlem, or James Baldwin, or Gino Diaz, or Jean Kwok, looking at it from a Chinese immigrant perspective. That's what gives this whole conversation such depth and, and gravity, because now you're taking people who, who, who have very acute minds, who see things that other people don't see, who see things better than other people see them, as I said in the essay, who see them sooner than anyone else sees it, and then explains it in a way that you can't forget. Um, so that's what, uh, that's where we really start. I love Calvino because he is so existential in his thinking, and you start thinking of a city as an entity in itself beyond New York, although lots of people like to relate him to New York. He was probably writing about Probably his, his guidepost was Venice, um, which is very different from New York. Um, but what he says, as what all of these writers do, has such universal application um, and is timeless. And that's why we go there. You know, the Calvino, I, you introduced me. Uh, to him, I wasn't familiar with with him and his book, um, uh, Invisible Cities, until I read your essays, and I've read it, and it is it's fascinating, it's wonderful. Um, there's a um, um, there's a passage in one of uh, the chapters there, and it actually isn't one that you have uh, used, but uh, there's there's a um, there's a chapter where he speaks about a city. Um, called Leandra, and uh, it, it is uh, occupied um, not only by the residents, but among the residents are these uh, spirits or gods, um, some of which live in the buildings and the homes and stay there, So, and, and they occupy the, 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 the buildings themselves throughout time. And... Um, others 
stay with families. So as families move from home to home, these spirits move with the families, whereas other spirits stay in a home where there are, um, you know, where new families will come in. And uh, at one point, um, he says, uh, the true essence of Leandra, so this is Calavino writing, the true essence of Leandra is subject of endless debate. Um, the pentates, these are the gods that, uh, um, um, that come with the families. Um, the pentates believe they are the city's soul, even if they arrived last year, and they believe they take Leandra with them when they emigrate. The lares, these are the gods that uh, live in the buildings themselves permanently, consider the pentates temporary guests, importunate, intrusive, the real Leandra is theirs which gives form to all it contains. The Leandra that was there before all these upstarts arrived and that will remain when all have gone away. That's a great, um, that's, a, that's, a, that's a really great um, ex uh, excerpt. Maybe it's one I should, I should add. Um, you know, it's, um, it's, it's, a, it's a very good, window into the way Calvino thinks about the city. Um, we should we should mention that the book the whole book is a fiction and it it's it it really uh, is a, a an imagined conversation that takes place in the 13th century between Marco Coppola, the Italian uh, explorer and Kubla uh, Khan. Of course, they never had that conversation. First of all, they couldn't have a conversation because they didn't speak the same language. But um, and and Marco Polo is discussing various cities, imaginary cities that he's visited. Um, what you see in that excerpt is something that seeing is 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 Calvino's view of the city as actually do have having a soul because there's a sense of permanence about it. You're, you know, the people who were here never really leave us. They've, they've made their mark. And I remind, I remind my students, look around you. Most of the city you were, you saw were built by people who are over here anymore. The Brooklyn bridge, the Manhattan bridge, the library, those people are not around anymore, but they're still with us in a way. So there's that. And then he also reminds us it's that we're all here just temporarily. So, you know, we, we all, and we all want to see ourselves, my, my students especially, are going to go out there to change the world, and many of them do, or they change a part of it. But it's also a reminder, you know, hey, you know, you're only a temporary uh, visitor here. Um, get a hold of yourself. Uh, don't take yourself too seriously. Um, somebody will come in and maybe even have a different opinion than you, and they may be right. Um, so it, it's a wonderful way to view the city and to imagine it. Um, and he, he brings so much imagination to the task that he's constantly, every time, I, every time I read it, I get something different out of it. And here you just added something that, you know, I could, I could put that in the syllabus tomorrow and it would make a lot of sense. <laughs> Well, I, I'm, I will put uh, a link to the book in, in the, the episode notes. So it, it is, it's, it's a treasure. Um, you know, again, just staying with this idea of the soul. Um, you know, Ed, you were speaking about, in some ways, kind of uh, advising a certain humility on the part of all of us who want to change the world. Um, and other people will come along with, with different opinions um, and might try to undo the changes that you might might bring about. Um, cities have been described, trying to understand you know, what makes a city um, itself, is, um, as one philosopher has put it, it's, it's, it's heterogeneity. Um, it, it, it is difference. It is bringing difference together in a relatively confined space, and it is that interaction that, in a sense, defines the, the city experience and makes a city what it is. So if you and you know, different cities at different times bringing together different 
um, unique individuals. Um, and, I, and I, you know, I wonder if, if, if it is that difference, it's that interaction of difference that gives a city um, and gives New York its dynamism um, and which kind of links up to another sense or meaning of what we uh, of the, the idea of soul. <laughs> that a soul, having a soul is what gives you your life, you know, that you're the dynamism of, of, of life, what makes you a living thing is that you have this soul in you. And if the soul is, is not there, you're just like an empty shell. Um, and whether small towns um, lack that sort of soul, you know, lack that because of there's much more hom- homogeneity there. I wonder what your what your thoughts are on that. Whether that reading too much into that, or, or there's something about that difference. Oh, I think the blend of so many different people gives the place energy. Uh, it gives it conflict also. A conflict. You want to look at it from a Hegelian point of view. The philosopher creates change, uh, and. Um, and that's so much a part of understanding New York. Um, cities in general, but especially New York. Uh, okay, so, you know, spoiler alert, you know, we have a New York bias. Um, you know, we think, we think New York is we do. the center of the universe. Um, and so, you'll have to admit that. Um, and well, you know, that's an interest. I don't mean to interrupt you, but that I think isn't necessarily like an aside. I mean, if we're going to speak about the soul of New York, what is New York? Why, you know, is there is there a London bias? Is there uh, there might be a Paris bias? Um, you know, is there a Tokyo bias? Is there a Moscow bias? You know, is there uh, you know, a Mexico City bias, the, the way that there is this New York bias? There is. Um, well, the Paris bias is a French bias, but um, <laughs> that's the French. Um, but um, I, I, and I think everyone has a certain bias to their city. But I think New York, it, just like New York, it, it tends to be larger, I think. Um, because New York has been a gateway for so many years for so many different kinds of people. And there are a few cities that have, are so large that have attracted that diversity of people that gives it its character, makes it constantly a place for change. Um, creates conflict, uh, forces us to rethink things. Sometimes we look back at our history and don't understand it. It's hard to understand the politics of the 1950s, for example, looking at it through the lens of the 21st century. But what you're looking at is a very different city. You know, the, the city of Robert Wagner was a majority white city. It's not anymore. And when we talk about diversity, it's, 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 um, it's, a, it's not just black and white either. It's black and white and brown. It's Asian. It's, um, it's, it's a new view of life. It's a new view of sexuality. I mean, there were conversations you could have now about sexuality that were unimaginable four years ago. 20 years ago. So yeah, we're constantly talking about this city as a changing phenomenon because it is changing and it's going to continue to change. That's one of the themes of Calvino also. There's this wonderful, creepy story about this upper city and lower city. And when people die, they go to the lower city and they recreate themselves. Um, that's what happens in a city like New York. People come to New York to recreate themselves in many ways. They come with their aspirations. And, you know, there is an excess of musicians and dancers and generals and, uh, and all these 
kinds of people in the lower city that have these great aspirations and dreams. That's what people bring to a New York. I, to me, that's a that whole story is it really about immigration. Um, I don't know if Calvino saw it that way, but that doesn't matter. When you read good literature, it, in the end, it's really uh, maybe the liter literature professors won't agree with me on this, but it's what you get out of it when you read it and how it opens your mind and gets you to think about things differently. Um, that's why I sign it. I'm not a liter I'm not a literature professor. Um, I'm not even a philosopher. I'm a, in the end, I'm a public policy professor who's who's tried to be informed by lots of disciplines. Um, and that's what we get out of reading stuff like that. Let's talk more about the public policy then. The, the you have, as you said earlier, you have um, spent um, a lot of your career talk, uh, writing and, and working with mayors. Um, you wrote a book um, on um, Bill de Blasio, where you are talking about, and in, the, in your title is um, saving the soul of the city and whether he would be in a position to do that. You want to speak um, about that and, you know, leading us to speaking about where we are right now with what would seem to be the imminent election of Eric Adams um, and what that says about the current state of the soul of the city. As I said before, mayors to me represent the city at a particular point in time. You know, the book about the Blasio uh, includes three, three, depending on how you count them, four chapters on the history of New York, which I believe are, are my favorite chapters in the book. Um, and go back to LaGuardia and even Jimmy Walker, as I said. You know, I've, I've done a couple of books on John Lindsay also. Um, so let's deal with the soul question first. I mean, the constant question that keeps bugging me and I keep thinking about, is this a kind soul or a mean soul? Because we've seen aspects of it both ways. And I guess the reason why we all go back to LaGuardia and looking at the mayoralty, and he's just about every mayor's favorite mayor, is he represented something, uh, what we consider a progressive notion. Maybe that's a bias. Maybe it's not. You can decide for yourself. Um, How would you define progressive? Because it, it, um, it's a word. The way I would define progressive is an understanding that as a society, we have a responsibility to take care of and help people who are struggling. And in a city where you're constantly getting an influx of newcomers, many of whom are looking for a better life, that becomes even more important in defining the, the, the soul of the city. Um, not everybody will agree with me. I mean, it's, it's a political notion of a city um, because it's saying that we have a responsibility and we, we um, act on that responsibility through government policy. So, you know, when we look at things like, you know, the, the LaGuardia who existed during um, the Depression and was a beneficiary of the New Deal, or we look at John Lindsay, who I've written a lot about, who was a beneficiary of the Great Society, um, we see a notion of progressive government that says that we have to take care of people, that that's our responsibility. Not everybody agrees with that. Some people will say, well, you know, we have to be careful. We have to protect people's rights. We have, you know, if you want to do that, then you're going to have to tax, to be blunt, you're going to have to tax people more than others who, have, who can afford more. Uh, and not everybody agrees with that. And so I'm constantly trying to see that that, that progressive soul is what really dominates the existence of the city. What brought me to, to write about Bill de Blasio, I didn't know him really before I took up the project. He was, he was very open and very receptive when I, when he found out, when I told him I was writing a book. 
is he was another departure, at least in the conversation, um, because we had 20 years of Giuliani in Bloomberg. They were different from each other, but there were certain um, ideas about what the responsibility of the city was to people who were struggling. And the Blasio was the first, was the only candidate at the time to run against what we might consider the Bloomberg legacy. Um, but he opened up a conversation about uh, dealing with people who were struggling in a way that we had not seen for a long time, since the fiscal crisis, really. I mark looking at history, and I don't think I'm alone on this. You know, the fiscal crisis was a turning point because it was, for some people, evidence that this progressive spirit was unreasonable and impractical. And particularly during the Lindsay years, said, well, you know, the city was in trying to do this, was living beyond its means and went bust and went broke. So, I mean, Lindsay became the posted boy for uh, people who had a different point of view. And for some, he was an example of the failure of American liberalism, as it was called then. Uh, and, uh, and those kind of ambitions. So um, I'm constantly trying to figure out where this soul is going. Can I ask you, you know, so you just, you said that uh, like the fiscal crisis represented for some uh, kind of an indictment of, uh, I suppose, a a political, philosophical view. Um, Do you... I take it you disagree, or do or do you? I mean, is there is there any uh, do you, do you share any uh, of that view, or do you have a different take on what um, the fiscal crisis signified? I generally don't agree with that. Um, I do. I and I've, I've written about this. Um, there were there were certainly excesses. Uh, in the sense that we were dishonest with ourselves about the budget. We were pretending we had revenues that we didn't have. Uh, What was unfortunate is we didn't have those revenues. I mean, you have whatever revenues you want, really. You can make decisions about that. Um, You know, so those kinds of gimmicks that we saw within within government at the time were problematic. I don't believe in dishonesty, but I, I am generally of the of the opinion that you in the in this country you can pretty much do what you want to do when you set priorities, and certainly uh, there are enough resources here to help people who are in need. If you choose, you want to do that. That puts more burdens on those who are better able to meet those burdens. Some people would say that's unfair, Um, but if you have a view of society and government as acting to express the priorities of society, which says that we're all in this together and we should help people, then that so-called progressive view is, is something you can live with. If not, then you have problems with it. And that's a constant conversation going on today. Yeah, many will say um, that it isn't um, about having the money. It's about having the, the will. The exactly. political will. So um, would you say that, that maybe what the fiscal crisis represented, though there were, as you're saying, there were financial problems, but was was the will was the will no longer there by 1975 i think what happened is um the fiscal crisis was a reminder that even in new york even those of us who 
even New York, which is the center of the universe, um, local government can't do those kinds of things on its own. And I think what we've proven historically, and I wrote about this in the book, the last book, is that is that if you want to have serious, if you want to talk about public policy, you want to have a really serious redistributive public policy, a lot of the redistribution has to take place at the national level. Um, that the city can't do it on its own. The two examples of progressive government, which I pointed to, uh, LaGuardia and Lindsay both had partners in Washington, in LBJ and in FDR. I remember when I met with Blasio one of the times, and he spent a lot of time with me once he realized I was doing the book. And I said, you know, your problem is that you're trying to, um, you're trying to live LaGuardia's dream in Bloomberg City. I said, this ain't the same place anymore. I said, number one, you've got this guy in Washington whose name we won't even mention, uh, who's not going to be any help at all. Um, I said, and, um, you know, there's so much you can do in New York, even at the local, even in great New York. And he was, he was very comfortable with the kinds of, New York was doing quite well when he started his administration financially. Um, and he says, well, and he was being very pragmatic. He says, I, you know, I can, I can talk, I can pine over what I don't have, but I have to work with what I do have. And I think we can do certain things. Um, of course, that was before the plague came. <laughs> and, um, and that changed everything for him also in terms of resources and the health, the fiscal health of the city. Um, and, and so um, I think an important part of this equation is the federal role and the national role. Uh, it's interesting that um, this Joe Biden, who was generally seen as a moderate centrist, seems to get it. He understands the New Deal well. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting, you know, having you know, read that part of your book as well and this linkage of or the, or the significance of having this, as you put it, kind of the partner in, in Washington um, that um, LaGuardia and Lindsay had. Um, but as you're saying, de Blasio did not. Um, I'm wondering, you know, now with the infrastructure bill, the, the relief um, bills that have been um, passed in Washington because of the pandemic, um, I, I wonder, you know, in some odd way, if any someone who would be sympathetic with the idea of de Blasio as kind of reviving this progressive vision for the city, if the pandemic had happened earlier in his tenure, would, would it have been better for him in some ways or better for the city in the, in the long term? And, and, so that'll, and that can like lead into a question about, okay, now that this money is coming in, what are your expectations uh, of what an Eric Adams might do with it or how he, how he will affect the city? But what, I guess I'd like to hear your thoughts first about de Blasio. Well, I, don't think it the, would, I, would, I don't think it would have been better if the, if the pandemic came sooner because we had somebody in the White House who obviously didn't know what to do with it, did all the wrong things. Or maybe better to put it, if if de Blasio's tenure, if his his mayoralty had started later, maybe that would be a better way to get probably, out the point. He probably, he would probably agree with that. He would prefer to have Joe Biden in Washington yes. than anybody but Andrew Cuomo in Albany, probably. So if you were asking that, uh, I think he would say, yeah. Um, I mean, I don't want to speak for him, but um, I have a feeling that's what he would say. Um. I think there are opportunities now that did not exist before. Uh, and it's interesting how the Democratic Party at the national level has begun to come to terms with things that Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren were talking about much sooner, particularly Bernie. Um, that guy is originally from Brooklyn, by the way. And Biden got it. Um, Biden's a very smart, 
politician who comes from more modest background. Uh, and I think he gets that. And he's trying to move the party in a away from the centrist position of the Clinton years, which were very centrist, uh, at least. And it's trying, trying to help to redefine the Democratic Party. There's a lot of tension there, which I don't think we want to get into now, but within the party itself. What, what I'm concerned about, and I think I mentioned it in one of the essays, I mean, what the odd thing is going on now, it's usually New York is out left in the, and the Democratic Party is, is coming along, trying to drag New York, trying to drag the party with it. Um, it's almost like I'm wondering if New York is, is moved back to the center. I mean, what's interesting about this election, as I mentioned, only half the Democratic Party candidates thought it was a good idea to raise taxes on the wealthy. And Eric Adams goes to great pains to reassure people that, you know, you know, we, we saw it in the Times the other day again, you know, saying, you know, how the rich pay a disproportionate amount of taxes. Um, that's not what I would have preferred to hear uh, in a city where we, we should be having those conversations. We don't know enough about Adams yet to say where he is on that. But the signals are not encouraging. And, you know, I, I think he's sent some other signals that I think, you know, he obviously understands police issues well. And hopefully he'll do something with that. But I don't know where the city's going. Um, I don't know if saying that will, in the end, be supported by the majority of New Yorkers. I don't think it will. Uh, I don't know where the state's going because we haven't seen enough of Kathy Hochul yet. And we don't know how long she's going to be there. But her record is one of a, of a moderate. Um, she's more of a Clinton Democrat than what we might say a Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren Democrat. There seems to be, uh, uh, I, I see the reemergence of Michael Bloomberg in the, in the circles that, uh, are being formed at City Hall and in the governor's mansion. And that's very different from where we were in the 2013 election. Well, on, on that point, um, this difference, um, a previous guest I had, I spoke with uh, Bradley Tusk, who um, worked for uh, Michael Bloomberg, um, in fact, was his campaign manager for his third term. And he is generally supportive of Bloomberg, as you might suspect, and he was supportive, uh, he was, he, he supported Andrew Yang in the current, uh, the, the most recent primary, um, thinking of, of Yang as someone who fit as, uh, the mold as close to Bloomberg as closely as anyone, uh, around, uh, someone who would kind of just manage the city in a, kind of perhaps a technocratic way um, and let people do their thing um, and, and let people you know, kind of thrive to the extent that they can. Um, and that is kind of Tusk's view about how a city, in a sense, ought to be run. And when I asked him um, about the election of de Blasio as being kind of a reaction to to that kind of a, a different, you know, a view that the city was kind of, you know, kind of uh, trying to kind of cut back, in a sense, to the more progressive uh, positions that that you've been talking about here. He sort of dismissed that by saying that um, it really is when you think about the small number of people who participate in the voting, uh, 
and this is something that you were you made allusion to earlier in the conversation about the the kind of the low participation that he was elected with high 200,000 300,000 votes um that it isn't that we can't kind of look at the election of Bill de Blasio as making some sort of philosophical statement that there's insufficient you know, it's just such a small kind of a slice of the electorate that have actually voted to put him in there. Um, and he thinks that the wider electorate, if you've got more participation, would be more central, would be more centrist. So the, the city that you're wondering, you know, where it is, he would say that it is more centrist and that it is kind of Bloombergian in, in its philosophy now. Okay, well, I'm a political scientist, so I take elections seriously. One of the great questions, one of the great problems in New York is the decline of voter participation. If you look at 1950 election going back, there are over 2 million people voted in mayoral elections. Now, over two, over two, uh, uh, now it's less than half that. That's, that's a huge drop off. So I will grant that that's a problem. Um, if there's an underrepresentation in the in the election, those who are are underrepresented are not the ones who are paying high taxes. Those who are underrepresented are those of us who need a progressive view of the city. Because for generations of political scientists have been showing parallels between demographics and voting behavior. It's it's assumed, it's not even questioned anymore. So then it gets back to what the city, well, you know, Mike Bloomberg did a lot of things that would be considered progressive. He was very good on environment. He was very good on health issues. He was, um, he was very good on marriage equality. He was very good on gun control. But no matter what your agenda is, if the support is not there in terms of resources, then you can see the city as a, as at least one part of this attempt to take care of those who are needy, and that has to involve redistribution. And it's not a technocratic problem. If running, if, if you think New York running New York is a technocratic issue, you don't understand New York. Take the course, because one of the reasons I start with literature is to remind them we're a public policy program. You know, so we 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 train people how to read the charts and how to do the calculations. But you've got to remind yourself, and that's what literature does, that what you're talking about is human issues. You can talk about immigration, but you read Gene Kwok and you talk and you see the problems of being an immigrant in a city where your mother doesn't speak the English language and is totally out of connect, out of touch with the culture that her daughter is coming to. That's how you understand New York. It's not a technocratic issue. You can, you can have the greatest technology in the world and the, and the greatest capacity to do those calculations. If you don't understand the human element of it, you don't belong at City Hall, really. Um, you know, if you read Steinbeck and A.B. White, they have this wonderful view of the city as a, as a magnet for opportunity. And people are going to come here and remake their lives. And then you read Juno Diaz, who came here and says, my dad had crap jobs living in, uh, in an apartment with no heat. That's what it's like being an immigrant here. It's not glorious. It's a struggle. So if you don't understand that aspect of it, you know, forget the charts, forget the calculations, forget the policy analysis, which is what we teach here. Um, you got to understand the human aspect of it. The clock... Again, I, I apologize for interrupting. I found that very kind of a very moving passage. You speak about that in the in the um, um, in your essay about her, uh, the mother struggling with jobs to pay for the daughter's dance lessons, and to kind of see the daughter um, through her sacrifices, through the work that she's doing, see, seeing her daughter become more and more assimilated into this life of the city, which on the one hand is part of the reason for coming here. And yet the pain, the, the, the sense of loss in some way 
to see the daughter becoming a part of a culture and a, uh, and a society that the mother cannot, cannot be in the, to the same degree, in the same way. It's a very sad story. It's a, and this is, this is part of the story of a, a culturization, socialization, immigration, all of that. I mean, um, I, I had students in my class who lived that experience all the time. I had a student crying, saying, I get that. I understand it. The, the, the more progress I make, the farther I get from the life my family leads. Um, they still love their family, but it's tension. And so those human connections are very important. And when push comes to shove, if you don't have the resources, then you can't really support a progressive agenda. And the only way to have the resources, there's no other way to do it. You've got to take that where they're from and you've got to, You've got to take it from that where, where it is. And where it is is people who have more resources. When you see what people who are uber rich do with those resources, you say, and, and kind of the crazy ways that people spend money, and, and it kind of makes you angry when you say, you know, there are folks who are really troubled trying to put, feed their kids. So, yeah, I guess um, that stuff is what moves me. And I, I wonder where we're going on this. I wonder where New York is going on this. I think people, I think there's been a change in the, in the politics of the country and the, and the, and the, and the politics of progressivism. Um, my parents' generation believed in the American dream. And they thought if you work hard and you bust your butt, eventually you, you and your kids would live a better life. And it happened. I live a very different life from what my family lived, what my, certainly what my grandparents lived. But that's not true anymore. Because of public policy, mostly federal policy, there's been a redistribution of wealth in a way that is unconscionable. And the only way to fix that is to, is to change it back. That's public policy. And that will has to be there. And um, what's, what's different now is, you know, we read, we read policy research by economists and political science, which shows now there's been a redistribution. And the bottom line is, the system is rigged. You know, when Bernie Sanders said that early on, people will say, well, this is, you know, this is jargon. This is sensationalism. This is not, you know, what do you mean the system's rigged? People get it now. People believe that the system is rigged. So the politics is not the same as it was. It's not People are not are not as persuaded as they were years ago that, you know, if I just bust my ass, literally, things will get better. They're saying, no, I'm doing that, and things are not getting better. And so that the word is out here. And so this is what I mean when I say that. I don't know. It re, it's an interesting question to me is that uh, if political leaders keeps talking about how the, you know, the rich are being overtaxed. I don't know where that's going to go. I mean, I, I was, I was pleased that it was a real recognition of how people are fearful of crime in poor neighborhoods. I was pleased that they, uh, you know, on, on a lot of things that connected uh, the campaign to what we call working class blue collar people, which we beginning to figure out are not all white. They're black and brown, and they live in the city. But we'll see how that shakes out in terms of political agendas. Something that I got from reading your book, the, uh, the sense of like New York kind of uh, being a forerunner of the kind of political winds, it seemed, 
and so particularly with respect to kind of progressive policies that you were focusing on, um, but it also seemed in the case that you know, 1975, post-fiscal uh, crisis, that the shift um, towards um, um, to kind of the more neoliberal um, perspective, if, if that's the right term, also seemed to kind of originate in New York or started there. Um, one, I want to, I'm asking is if that is a correct interpretation, if, if, if kind of like New York has kind of pushed the country in these different ways. And if that's, if you agree with that, um, is New York still in, still have that kind of role, that in significance or importance? So you're wondering where things are going to go from now. Is, is, it new, is New York the city, in a sense, that needs to set the course to wherever it's going? Um, New York is important because it's a media center. I think the course was set mostly during the Clinton years in Washington, but you, can, you can't say that New York didn't have anything to do with that because a lot of what they were responding to in Washington at the time, Democrats and Republicans, by the way, you know, stop, stop believing that the Republicans got us there. And, you know, Wall Street lobbying had a lot to do with it. The finance community is very powerful in Washington. And so you can't separate that influence from a recalculation of an agenda, which says, let's lower taxes on these guys. You know, between 2000 2010, I guess, 30% of the redistribution of wealth could be totally explained by changing in tax laws. That's policy. Somebody's driving that policy. And that policy was, was supported by both Democrats and Republicans. And that's why there was a kind of a soul searching, if I can use the term again, in the Democratic Party that was forced by Bernie Sanders and, and, and Elizabeth Warren. Uh, that has got us to where we are now. Um, it remains to see, be seen how this plays out in terms of what the final, where are we going to get a new New Deal? Or we're going to get a, a watered down deal. Um, we don't know yet. It could go either way. Hopefully, they won't blow up the budget totally. Um, in terms of you know not approving uh, debt limits, but um, you know New York will always have a role to play because New York has a very powerful constituency that go beyond its borders and. You know, New York has a voice in Washington. Uh, it has a progressive voice in Washington, too. I mean, New York drove the New Deal in a way. You know, we had FDR in the White House, and we had LaGuardia was campaigning in the White House the day after he got elected, before he was even sworn in, um, had an influence on that. I think John Lindsay had an influence on national policy as a spokesperson for cities at the time. Um, but it, what's interesting and somewhat concerning is that I'm not sure that the, the politics of New York as displayed in the recent election is as, is as progressive as the politics of the, of the National Democratic Party under Joe Biden, who was once seen as a kind of a moderate centrist. So, I mean, that's a very interesting question we have to answer, I think. And it's too early to say. I don't, I don't want to, I, I, I think it's, it's, there's enough there to raise these questions. We don't, we, I mean, I, I think Adams has to give, be given an opportunity to play things out. So I don't want to judge him, prejudge him. I'm responding to the rhetoric or um, maybe, or the speeches or what I hear in the public statements. And we'll see. He says, well, give me a chance. And I think we need to give him a chance. So would you consider yourself somewhat cautiously uh, hopeful about the future of the, of the city, the soul of the city? I know in your essay, you, you, you say in some ways that you have to be. Yeah, I mean, if you can't give up on it. You know, my 
cautiously hopeful. Maybe I'm hopefully cautious. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Um, it's you got to watch and see. And, you know, this is the kind of thing that I spend my time thinking about uh, and talking about. Uh, and I'm, I'm very appreciative of the opportunity to do it today with you. Uh, um, we need to keep watching. We need to keep asking questions. Uh, and that just doing that alone, I think, does have a, we like to think, have a positive impact on things, or at least bring it to a direction that we want to see. Um, but time will tell. Indeed. Thank you very much for your time and for your thoughts. Um, and it has been quite an enjoyable uh, conversation, even when um, it seems at times can be bordering on the depressing uh, <laughs> and the concerning. But uh, it was a pleasure speaking with you. And I want to thank you. I want to thank you, too. Thanks. Terrific. That's it for this episode. As always, I want to hear what you think about today's conversation or any of the previous ones, as well as your suggestions for future topics and guests. You can find both myself and the Gotham Philosophical Society on Twitter, at J.S. Beale and at PhilosophyNYC, respectively. Thank you for listening, and please join us for the next one.